This is They Create Worlds, episode 107. Story time with a book. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we would like to say the contest is over. It's all over. This episode dropped. It's gone. It's nada. It's Zippo. We don't even know who won yet. That's true. We don't because it is literally just closed. If you are listening to this like seconds after it dropped, if you're listening to this five years later, don't be sad. You didn't just miss it. You missed it five years ago. It's okay. That's true. But that's right. We are closing entries now, so we will be in the very near future doing the drawing. Don't know quite yet as we record this because there's still time for more entries, how many books we'll be giving away to the general public, but it'll definitely be at least three counting the Patreon book and maybe even more than that. We did have an enthusiastic response to what we were doing. We got a lot of entries. Yeah, hopefully the people that end up winning that are going to enjoy. We'll be back with details to those people as as soon as we can. But of course, we're recording this well before February 1st. For some reason. The contest is still going on right now. Right. But it's over. It's over. It is over. How this is going to work is in the next few days here after this episode drops is I will correlate all the nice names together, throw them all into this wonderful virtual draw name thing, and then I'll be, I have a list of winners. Yay! Then I will email those people and be, hi, nice person, you won. That's right. We'll do the Patreon drawing first. And one of our patrons will win that copy of the book. The patrons that don't win that copy will be thrown into that general drawing. And then we'll do a general drawing for two or three, depends on what the final entry count looks like, and then get that news out there. Yep. So I'll contact whoever wins and give you guys like a week or two to try and respond. Try to respond to me as quickly as you can. Then I'll start working on arranging where we're shipping it to, what you want written in it, just our names, us in a little message, something like that. That's right. And then once I have all the winners confirmed, we will announce who those people are, if they're okay with it, on the next episode, the one that goes out on the 15th, barring that, the one that goes out March 1st. Absolutely. And we can also announce it on our Twitter. Did you know that we Twitter, Jeff? No, not the fact that I keep an eye on it nearly every day. That's right. We do Twitter. That's what the cool kids call it, right? No. No? We're not the cool kids. Oh. Yeah, the cool kids are using TikTok, so anyway. um, (laughs) uh, This is a good time to remind people that we do have a Twitter, though. We put it in the end notes of the episode. And we started something new and, uh, I hope, fun this month, didn't we, Jeff? We did. So if you are already paying attention to it and have been following us, we give you historical facts of the month. That's right. So in a kind of throwback Thursday tradition, what we're doing and we started, we had a few early posts about really early history, 50s and 60s stuff at the end of last year. But it really starts this month where we're doing a look back every month at what happened in the industry 50, 40, 30 
20 years ago. So most months have four weeks. Of course, a couple have five. So that's why we chose 50, 40, 30, 20. Each week, we post a fact of something that happened first week of the month 50 years ago, second week of the month 40 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Just a short 280 character thing, just to kind of hopefully keep our name out there a little bit and uh, engage a bit and get some more little factoids out there. Certainly, big shout out to our sister podcast, the Video Game Newsroom Time Machine, that does a similar deep dive in their podcast every month. That's certainly one of the reasons that I thought that this might be a good idea, but we're not stepping on each other's toes because we just tweet out one little 280-character thing about something that happened, and they take a month and go really, really in-depth on several things in that month. Shout out to them, though. They're fun people as well. You even did an interview with them. I did. That's true. So, yeah, we tweet. We tweet. We do a little bit of self-promotion, somewhat shamefully. Well, I mean, it's our podcast. We are allowed to promote ourselves. It's okay. Is that in the bylaws? (laughs) And speaking of promoting ourselves, that's what this entire episode is about. Shameless self-promotion. But I thought this was about the glories of the adventure games and LucasArts. I have no idea what you're talking about. What is this LucasArts? I don't even know what that means, Jeff. Secret of Monkey Island, Day of the Tentacle. No, not ringing a bell. Never played any game like that obsessively for hours on end. Nope, definitely not. Okay, obviously after we record this episode, I need to take Alex to the hospital and get his head examined. So we did say that this was going to be a look at LucasArts graphic adventures. Best of intentions, real life got in the way of getting all the research together. Obviously, I'm very knowledgeable about this stuff, and occasionally I can even do an entire episode without going back and checking my notes. But video game history is bigger than my brain capacity, so there is actually a lot of prep that goes into every episode. And for a variety of reasons, I couldn't really put in the prep time this time around to cover that topic the way it deserves. So we are going to hit that next time. That will be our next episode after this one. Instead, we're moving up something that we'd already planned to do at some point. This isn't like that weird half-hour thing we did that one time where it's just like, oh, shoot, and now we have to wing it because we need an episode and we don't have anything. And if we ever do that again, I'm using that special music. (laughs) Right. So this is a real episode, and it's actually something we had already planned to do. We're just moving it up in order because it's something that didn't need nearly the same amount of prep time. As everybody, hopefully by now that is a regular listener, knows, uh, I wrote a book. Yay! First of a three-volume history of the video game industry. They create worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry. Available CRC Press, the publisher from their website, Amazon barnesandnoble.com, other major online retailers. So what we thought we'd do this time is actually do a reading from the book. I've chosen a chapter in the book. We're going to uh, do a reading of it so that you can kind of see what approach I've taken, what I'm doing with this book, what some of our happy listeners have just won, etc., etc. Now, we're not just going to do a straight reading. This is a podcast. We'll stop and interject and interrupt and go on tangents just like we do in every episode. This is a one-off kind of thing. I mean, we might do the same thing when Volume 2 drops in a couple of years, but 
not going to be reading through the entire book on the, the show, which would certainly not make my publisher happy, I'm sure. I did retain the copyright on it, so they can't get upset with me for teasing one chapter out there because it's mine. But <laughs> uh, So we thought this would be a fun way to promote the book a little bit and have a conversation about something. So hopefully if you're on the fence about buying the book, this might push you over the edge. That's right. Or it may make you run away in terror and never want to read anything I write ever, ever again. So I guess we're taking a chance here. Julian doesn't approve of this. Julian really wants to listen to your book. (laughs) Well, we're going to listen to a chapter of it at any rate. But which chapter? This is an important thing to know. We are going to do chapter 18, entitled Breaking Out in Japan. That sounds eerily familiar to what we did about the whole Japanese arcade and video games right after the war and all that fun stuff. Some Sega was in there. Absolutely. There are a few things within here that we have talked about before, but there's also some stuff in this chapter that we haven't talked about before. That ought to be fun. Fun, you say? Fun. Yeah, why not? So we will learn (laughs) more about Japan than we have ever learned before. Eh, Something like that. So, as I said, this is chapter 18. It's somewhere in the middle of the book. We've already laid a lot of groundwork here for what was going on in the arcade business in the early 70s. And this one kind of takes off starting in about 1975 and covers a few things within this time period here talks about the uh, development of Breakout and how it became big in Japan, how the Japanese industry began growing as a result of that. So before we get started, just want to say that kind of the format of this book, every chapter is thematically coherent. Each one kind of covers one topic. It pulls in stuff. Some of the topics are broader than others, but I try not to just make it a litany of This company came along and did this game, and then this company came along and did that game, and then this company had this game, followed by this company during that game, because nobody really wants to hear that. So I try to focus every chapter thematically. I usually have a brief introductory portion at the beginning of the chapter. Sometimes that introductory portion is a little more tangential to the rest of it. It's usually something that sets the scene a little bit and something... And quite honestly, it's a place where I sneak in little thematic snippets that I couldn't make fit into any individual chapter, but I felt like I wanted to get in the book somehow. They're not non sequiturs because each one of these introductions leads directly into the main subject of the chapter, but they're often coming at it from a slightly different angle or including some information I couldn't fit in the book in any other way. So without further ado... Let's get started on Chapter 18, Breaking Out in Japan. This won't be a straight read-through. We will definitely interrupt ourselves occasionally as we go. In May 1975, a new player appeared in the coin-operated video game industry called Fun Games, Incorporated. The founder of the company, Oberto Alvarez, was a banker forced to leave Cuba in 1962 due to his opposition work against Cuban leader Fidel Castro. After arriving in the United States... He took a job as a janitor at the Corbuilt Container Company in Alameda County and rose to become VP of Wood Products. Corbuilt built shipping containers for coin-op manufacturers, providing Alvarez his introduction to the amusement industry. Like Harry Couric at Meadows, he decided to establish his own coin-op manufacturer because the industry appeared recession-proof. The key employees of Fun Games, 
salesperson Pat Carnes, and engineer Larry Leppert, defected to the firm from Atari after becoming fed up with the chaos, financial difficulties, and politicking that marred Atari during the John Wakefield presidency. So obviously in that paragraph there's references to a few things. Meadows Games gets talked about in detail earlier, as does all of the chaos that was happening at Atari in the 1974-75 time period. Stuff that, as I'm sure you remember, we went into much detail on when we did one or two or four Atari episodes that one time. I think the count now for Atari is something like six episodes that are core Atari episodes, <laughs> and we have tangential up to like 15. Yeah, well, you know, they were a big deal. Leppert originally left Atari to work for a carnival supplier called Mar Quinn looking to break into the video game industry, and he illegally took several Atari schematics, circuit boards, and ROMs with him. When Mar Quinn folded soon after, Leppert joined Fun Games instead where he completed the process of copying Tank using his pilfered Atari materials to develop a clone called Tankers. Real original name there. Tank to Tankers, huh? Yeah, definitely original. The next year, Leopard used the same technique to develop Biplane, which copied an Atari game called Jet Fighter that applied the one-on-one gameplay of Tank to aerial combat. Biplane proved to be a far bigger hit than Jet Fighter, but such flagrant theft of trade secrets resulted in a lawsuit from Atari that put an end to fun games as copying. Unable to compete with original ideas, the company collapsed and merged with Meadows Games in 1977. We've never done an episode on fun games, and we never will. There's too little there. But a little bit about them to begin this chapter. But what does this have to do with breaking out in Japan? Well, the next paragraph's going to tell us. One of the more unremarkable games released by the company in its brief lifespan was a 1975 ball and paddle collection called Take 5. Despite Pong-style games being completely blasé at that point... Fun Games updated it later in the year with two more games to create a new compilation called Take 7. Meadows considered Take 7 interesting enough to re-release after purchasing Fun Games, but it left little impact on the marketplace. Included in this update was a new Pong variant called Bust Out, in which the player bounces a ball off a paddle situated on the right side of the screen to break bricks arrayed on the left side of the screen. Like Fun Games' other products, Bust Out was also an Atari design adapted into a finished game. But unlike the forgettable Take 7, who had marked an important turning point in the industry, when it was released in early 1976 under the name Breakout. Ah, so that's how we break out in Japan. That's right. Or at least we got the breakout part of it. There you go. So then we have a section break. I use section breaks within chapters to transition between stuff. By 1975, Atari was back on its feet after the disastrous Wakefield era and blazing a unique trail through Silicon Valley perhaps in response to the corporate atmosphere that had pervaded in 1973 and 1974, Nolan Bushnell penned a manifesto espousing his hopes for the firm going forward, in which he described Atari as a collection of dedicated people who could be friends outside of the corporate hierarchy and push the company forward together. This was not just empty corporate jargon. The Atari of the mid-1970s took on something of a frat house atmosphere, as marijuana smoke filled the air, beer busts celebrated the end of the working week on Friday afternoons, and men and women working at the company paired off into relationships lasting anywhere from a few days to several years. The executive staff socialized after working on the weekend, while board meetings were often held in the hot tub at Bushnell's house in Los Gatos. When the company opened a new engineering building in 1978, it featured its own hot tub that saw alternating use by men and women during the week, but was co-ed on Fridays. So we just need to have some music, and then we will definitely have sex, drugs, and rock and roll that was the hallmark of the 60s in the 70s. 
Yeah, so uh, this is actually something that's gotten a bit controversial recently. There have been some academics that have been doing research on this period and about Atari culture. Atari was born at the tail end of this kind of 60s revolution. It was born in Northern California, kind of right in the heart of where this was going on. I mean, it's Silicon Valley wasn't quite at the heart of the hippie movement, but San Francisco's nearby, Berkeley's nearby. The free speech movement, the women's lib movement, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, free love, all of this was happening around the company. So some of those characteristics became a part of the company. There's been a lot of debate recently on whether the Atari culture was sexist, with some academics that are really involved in women's studies aspect or women in game studies aspect of this question saying that it was very much sexist. It's complicated. It's a culture that would not be tolerated in our time. No question. The way our society has evolved, we would not consider the Atari culture appropriate. I want to be very clear on that. It is a culture that was created by men and with an executive structure that was largely populated by men. So I can understand why there is a great desire to see that as some kind of strange sexist culture that was perpetuated by the people on top and yada, yada, yada. I think the truth's probably more complicated than that. It was a period of time when the society was changing and attitudes to love and sex were changing, and even feminist attitudes towards sex and sexual relations were very much changing. I think these days, when this period is reevaluated, and I'm not an expert on feminism or women's studies, so I could be getting this a little wrong, but I think when this period is evaluated today, it's seen as an incomplete feminist revolution and a kind of disappointing feminist revolution that didn't actually end up creating a more equal society, but instead ended up changing kind of the way sexual relations were working and making them freer and making moving between partners easier, but didn't necessarily eliminate or lessen too much the male power or the patriarchal power in those relationships. It seems to me that at the time, it wasn't necessarily viewed that way by the people participating. And it feels like at Atari in particular, There are women that won't talk about their experiences at Atari, and there are women that were clearly uncomfortable about some of their experiences at Atari. But it does feel like there was equal opportunity for advancement, and there are many women that did work at the company that felt like they were very well treated in this period, and felt like it was a fun company, and felt that women and men were being equally sexually overcharged or getting involved in this kind of culture, and that therefore it was consensual, even if it's something that, if we look back today, 45 years later, seems very, very odd. So I don't think that we have all the answers here, and my book is not a social or a cultural history, so I don't touch on all of this in great detail anywhere in the book. It's more of a business and technology history. But I did feel I needed to acknowledge that this was going on, which is what I'm doing here briefly. This chapter, before it gets into breakout, kind of catches up on where Atari is and where it's going in this time period. That's certainly such a big, complicated, and hot-button topic that is going on today that really, neither of us really have any kind of experience. Sure. I mean, I think to a degree you see what you want to see in it. 
And I think that that's why it's become such a divisive issue. I don't think there's enough direct evidence of what was going on at the company to just be able to say, okay, that was really terrible, or hey, this was really good. And so I think with the spotty evidence that we have, in part, people see what they want to see. So if you're on the lookout for sexist practices and unequal practices, you can definitely find some at Atari. And then because you can find some at Atari, I think it's very easy to broadly apply that to the whole company, which is not necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that if that's the direction you're looking to go, you can find the evidence there. Whereas if you want to say, no, it was just a fun-loving culture, everyone was doing it, nobody, or almost nobody, I'm sure some people were uncomfortable, but almost nobody was being made uncomfortable, and if you were uncomfortable, you weren't trapped there and you could move on. I think if you want to pull that out of it, there's also a, a perfectly good argument for that. And I think that's why this issue has become kind of divisive is because there isn't an easy answer and there isn't an easy set of proofs that you can apply to it. I don't take a side in the book, but I did want to kind of acknowledge that some of this was going on. So continuing with the culture then, the culture of Atari largely reflected the ages and personal beliefs of the participants. At the time, engineering jobs continued to be largely associated with either the military-industrial complex only beginning to fade in importance as the Vietnam War inched towards its conclusion, or corporate behemoths like IBM that valued conformity over individuality. Atari offered a place for a new breed of engineer, exposed to the student protest and women's liberation movements prevalent on Bay Area college campuses, and desirous of avoiding working on guided missiles or the massive mainframes that calculated the kill ratios in Vietnam. Young, idealistic, and perhaps a little distrustful of authority, these individuals were naturally drawn to a company like Atari that not only peddled fun rather than destruction, but also encouraged flexible hours, relaxed dress codes, open avenues of communication across all levels of the company, equal opportunity for advancement based on merit, and a great deal of freedom in the game development process. Nolan Bushnell set the tone at Atari with his outsized personality, gregarious nature, and insatiable curiosity. He also took the lead in developing the party-like atmosphere that pervaded Atari culture, reasoning that a bunch of young men and women working long hours to develop new video game product would appreciate the ability to blow off steam at work just as much as traditional corporate perks. While the day-to-day -day mundanities of running a corporation proved anathema to him, he gladly sold the Atari vision to investors in the press and nurtured the best ideas coming from his engineering staff while making them feel valued. Nothing delighted Bushnell more than walking through the engineering labs to see all the cool new games under development. He often could not resist contributing his own ideas, however, forcing Al Alcorn and Steve Bristow to watch him like a hawk and remind their engineers that Nolan did not manage R&D and engineering. Nolan's ideas would be forgotten in a few days anyway as became excited about the next big thing. Keeping the company on track fell to company president Joe Keenan. Unlike his predecessor, Keenan was not that much older than the rest of the team and understood the value of keeping a loose atmosphere. Unlike Bushnell, however, he was a competent administrator who could keep the day-to-day -day operation of the company flowing smoothly. While Atari placed a lot of emphasis on having fun, Keenan made sure that all departments were working hard and hitting targets before engaging in extracurricular activities. And that's one thing that I think gets a little lost in all of this talk about what was going on. There was drug use at the company. It was happening. It was mostly, as near as I can tell, confined to the end of the day. It was really kind of a blowing off steam kind of thing. Now, a little later in the company's history, it gets a little wilder. We talked about how things with the programmers kind of spiraled more and more out of control in the early 1980s. 
I think the culture was very different then. But in these early days, you don't have a lot of anecdotes about the programmers being on drugs. The executive staff was clearly using, at the very least, marijuana. But heavy use was generally confined to the end of the day. I don't talk about it in the book, but they had their so-called 501 meetings where, at the end of the day, those that partook of marijuana would go up to Bushnell's office to light up. But at the end of the day, not going down there and making decisions while high. There's that. I mean, they worked very hard, and they made sure that they were meeting targets, and they were being responsible in that manner, but they definitely had a loose atmosphere. It wasn't your typical corporation. (laughs) In its first few years, Atari did not employ any staff with extensive experience in the coin-op business. But that changed in late 1974, when the company hired Gene Lipkin, whose father, Saul, was a celebrated coin-op salesman with American Shuffleboard. Although Lipkin initially attended Ball State University in Indiana, he dropped out to enter the coin-op industry by working for a distributor, and became the sales manager of Allied Leisure in 1970. He grew disenchanted with the company during the Pong boom when a promised-per-unit commission on the smash-hit paddle battle failed to materialize, and departed the company to join Atari in late 1974 as a director of special projects because he was enamored with a multi-game arcade kiosk being developed by the company. In March 1975, Pat Carnes departed Atari as part of the Fun Games defection, and Lipkin moved into his former sales role while picking up the VP of Marketing title as well. With his extensive contacts in the industry and his skill as a dealmaker, Lipkin played a key role in stabilizing Atari's sales over the next few years, as did his friend Frank Ballou, a former salesman for copier company A.B. Dick, whom Lipkin hired into Atari as sales manager in mid-1975. Lipkin and Ballou possessed a keen sense for what games would be successful in the marketplace and were not afraid to kill games in development early if they looked to be losers, which helped Atari release a steady stream of modest hits throughout the rest of the 1970s. Lipkin also introduced new marketing sophistication to the coin-op business by hiring Carol Cantor as manager of marketing services in 1976. At the time, the only real market research the coin-op manufacturers engaged in was putting their prototypes out on test in local arcades and measuring the coin drop. This gave the manufacturers a good idea as to whether a game would be successful in the marketplace, but they never explored why a particular game did well or fared poorly. Cantor may well have been the first true market researcher in the history of the coin-op industry and she frequented local arcades to speak with players and discover what they really liked and hated about the games on the market. She would then pass this information along to the engineers to help them refine their games. While this new practice was looked upon with skepticism at first, the results were so useful that Cantor soon had a whole team of market researchers reporting to her. So there's an example of a woman in a high-level and a valued role in the company, and she's gone on the record in more recent times during some of these controversies to say that she was very happy at Atari and thought Atari had a great culture and didn't think anyone was engaging in anything that they didn't want to. Obviously, you can't know what's going on with everybody around you. I'm sure there are examples that are counter to that, but the general narrative is, is actually very positive on the Atari culture from the women that were actually there. New game ideas at Atari came from a variety of sources, but one particularly fruitful practice initiated in this period was for the entire engineering staff to attend off-site retreats dedicated solely to brainstorming new game ideas. These retreats started at a local Holiday Inn before moving to Baharo Dunes. The best ideas would be compiled in a book for future reference, and engineers could bid for projects in which they were particularly interested. One such project that Bushnell particularly championed was yet another take on the ball and paddle genre, brainstormed in January 1975, and inspired by the Ramtech game Clean Sweep from 1973. The idea was to keep the screen-clearing gameplay of the original, but to turn the dots of the game into a solid field of obstacles off which the ball would ricochet even as it knocked them off the screen. 
Bob Bushnell truly believed this concept would be a winner, none of his engineers proved willing to work on the game due to the collapse of the ball and paddle market. Therefore, Bushnell and Bristow took the unorthodox step of giving the project to a mere technician, a loudmouthed, filthy, often obnoxious 20-year-old named Steve Jobs. Stephen Paul Jobs was born on February 24, 1955, to Joanne Schiebel and Abdul Fattah Jandali, and adopted at birth by Paul and Clara Jobs. Paul, a former Coast Guard sailor working as a collection agent, moved the family to Mountain View, California in 1960. He instilled a deep love of design and craftsmanship in his adopted son through his hobbies of woodworking and refurbishing and selling used cars. It was through automobiles that Jobs first became exposed to electronics, but it was living in the heart of the region quickly developing into Silicon Valley that allowed his interest in technology to flourish as towns like Mountain View filled up with engineers and other technology experts. After a move to nearby Los Altos, Jobs attended Homestead High School, where in addition to continuing his studies in electronics, he began hanging out with the counterculture crowd and experimenting with LSD. After graduation in 1972, he matriculated to Reed College in Oregon and cultivated an interest in Eastern mysticism and Zen Buddhism. Bored at Reed, he dropped out soon after arriving, but continued to hang around, adopted a hippie lifestyle, and started walking around barefoot, following extreme vegetarian diets, and rarely bathing because he believed his diet would prevent body odor. Side note, he was wrong. Really? <laughs> yeah. In February 1974, he returned to Los Altos and managed to secure a job as a technician at Atari by walking into the lobby and refusing to leave until he was hired. That sounds like Jobs, doesn't it? Yeah, cultivating that uh, interesting Steve Jobs reality distortion field. Pretty much. None of the engineers at Atari liked Jobs, whom they perceived as arrogant and opinionated, and who usually smelled terrible. But Nolan Bushnell saw something in this brash yet intelligent and philosophical young man and placed him on a night shift so he would not have to interact with many people. In April, Jobs left the company to travel to India with his college friend Dan Kotke to further his quest for spiritual enlightenment. He convinced Atari to pay his airfare as far as Europe in return for delivering a fix to one of Atari's latest games to distributors in Germany and Italy. This isn't in the book, but ironically, that was actually more expensive than if he had just flown to India direct from the United States, but they thought they were doing him a favor. After seven months in India and 12 weeks of primal scream therapy in Oregon, Jobs returned to Atari with a shaved head and saffron robes in early 1975 and wrangled his old job back. He continued making frequent trips back to Oregon, but often needed additional funds to make the journey. Perhaps remembering how Atari helped him the last time he traveled, Jobs went to see Joe Keenan, claimed a guru he needed to meet would be visiting Oregon soon, and asked if he could do something to earn some extra money. The day before, Bushnell had sketched out for Keenan on his blackboard the recently brainstormed clean sweep style game that had failed to generate much enthusiasm. Sensing an opportunity to build Bushnell's pet game project, Keenan took Jobs to Bushnell's office to show him the sketch and offered Jobs a bonus if he could engineer the game with fewer chips than the typical hardware of the day. Jobs took the assignment, but he did not really possess the engineering skill to put together a complete arcade game. He did, however, count among his friends a brilliant engineer named Steve Wozniak. Hmm. <laughs> Born August 11th, 1950 in San Jose, California, Stephen Gary Wozniak came by his fascination for engineering honestly. As his father worked on defense projects such as guided missiles at Lockheed and tutored his precocious son in electronics from an early age. In 1960, Wozniak read an article about the pioneering ENIAC computer, began immersing himself in Boolean logic, and fantasized about having a computer of his own someday. Like Jobs, 
Wozniak attended Homestead High School, where he took an advanced electronics course and participated in a work-study program at Sylvania once a week, in which he learned Fortran and programmed a computer for the first time. He also discovered many computers and began designing his own on paper. Upon graduation, he matriculated to the University of Colorado at Boulder, but left in 1969 after being placed on academic probation and being disciplined for using university computers to run a series of mathematical programs and print the results, which ran his class well over budget for computer time. He returned home to San Jose and enrolled at De Anza Community College while continuing to design computers in his spare time. After a year at De Anza, Wozniak quit school and gained employment at a small computer company called Tenant. Using parts from his employer, Wozniak built his first computer prototype with the help of a younger friend named Bill Fernandez, which they called the Cream Soda Computer, in honor of their beverage of choice during the project. This may have been one of the first personal computers built, but it was accidentally destroyed when a reporter from the Peninsula Times came by to do a story and stepped on the power supply. After the completion of the project, Fernandez told Wozniak that he should meet a classmate of his at Homestead who shared Wozniak's love of practical jokes and building electronics, named Steve Jobs. The two Steves bonded immediately over a shared love of pranks and electronics and Bob Dylan, and they soon embarked on an entrepreneurial scheme together. In September 1971, as Wozniak prepared to return to school at Berkeley, he read an article in Esquire about the practice of phone freaking, in which individuals created devices called blue boxes that could emulate the tones of the routing signals used by AT&T and its long-distance network to place free calls. Wozniak and Jobs decided to construct their own blue box together, after which Jobs suggested they sell it. This illegal venture ended quickly when a potential buyer robbed them at gunpoint in the parking lot of a Sunnyvale pizza parlor. Don't do crime, kids. Don't do crime. That's right. Uh, Don't do crime, because crime's bad, okay? In January 1973, Wozniak secured a position at HP designing calculators. Soon after, he was introduced to video games through a Pong unit at a local bowling alley. Wozniak now had a new fascination, and he decided to build his own version of the game. After studying how televisions and video signals worked, he crafted a complete Pong unit out of 28 chips, a remarkably small number for the time. To further enhance his version, he added a feature that caused words like hell and damn to appear on the screen when the player missed the ball. By the time he had finished the game, Jobs was working at Atari, so Wozniak showed it to some of the engineers while visiting his friend one day. Al Alcorn offered him a job on the spot, but as far as Wozniak was concerned, he already had his dream job at HP designing circuits, and he never planned to leave. While Wozniak turned down the opportunity to work at Atari, he loved playing the company's games and Jobs would sneak him in at night so he could play the latest arcade hits for free. It was in this context that Jobs asked Wozniak to implement the game Bushnell sketched out for him. There was an additional catch, however. Due to the impending guru visit, Jobs told Wozniak that they had to complete the job in just four days. Wozniak decided he was up for the challenge. So Atari didn't say they had to create it in four days. But Jobs, because he had places to be, told Wozniak they had to complete it in four days. Jobs is an interesting character. (laughs) Yes. Over the next four days, Wozniak designed the layout of the hardware during the day, and Jobs produced the wire-wrapped circuit boards based on these designs at night, as Wozniak spent a few hours playing Grand Track 10 while waiting to test the newest revision. When the four days were over, both Steves had contacted Mononucleosis, but the game was completed using a mere 45 chips an astoundingly low number in a time when TTL games usually required more than 100. We have to remember that uh, this is not a microprocessor game yet. Everything's done with transistor-to-transistor logic, individual integrated circuits, dozens upon dozens of them. 
you don't have a general purpose CPU or chip running everything and then you code it to do the thingy, you pretty much do, I'm going to have a whole bunch of logic gates that's going to do this thing and I'm just going to throw them on effectively a breadboard and then hope it works. <laughs> exactly. And uh, 75 here, when this game is being prototyped, is kind of right at the transition period, but Atari hasn't started doing microprocessor games yet at this point. Breakout is, in fact, their last major hit that uh, did not run on a microprocessor. Jobs paid Wozniak half of the design fee for the game, but he did not tell his friend about the bonus for removing chips and kept all that money, several thousand dollars, for himself. True story. Atari accepted Wozniak's schematics and wire-wrapped prototype, but had to completely re-engineer the game for release. Although Wozniak's design was efficient, it was also idiosyncratic and impossible for Atari's technicians to understand for testing purposes. He also failed to complete several features, including coin control and sound, while also incorporating several components like an LED readout for the score that were not suitable to a coin-operated product. Atari engineer Gary Waters used Wozniak's work as a base, but discovered several glitches in the logic and received permission to use a typical Atari layout, thus largely negating the chip savings that Wozniak had engineered. Now, Jobs told him, save all the chips you can. He didn't also say, you have to make a product that will actually realistically function in an arcade environment. So, like, they'd never use an LED score in a video game at this point. A couple of early ones, particularly in Japan, did. But that's just not something you would do. But Wozniak did it because, hey, you told me to save chips. And if I'm doing the score in LED, then that means that I don't have to have this character generator chip here. Exactly. And that's why later on when he goes and designs the original Apple and the Apple II, it has interesting characteristics with the display. Yeah, which we, of course, talked a little bit about in our uh, episode on some of that early computer hardware. Key, this being Gary Waters, to bring us back into it, he also added proper on-screen scoring, sound, and a two-player mode to the game. Once the redesign was complete, Atari released Breakout in May 1976. It proved to be a smash hit and sold over 11,000 units, which was very good for a game at the time. Anything that broke 10,000 units at that time was a monumental hit. Typical hit sold in the, you know, mid-thousands, four, five, six thousand, so 11 was very good for that time period. As popular as the game was in the West, its impact was even greater when it reached Japan later in the year through the Nakamura Manufacturing Company. We might have talked about them at some point. I think we did. Atari had been interested in releasing its products in the lucrative Japanese coin-op market since its earliest days. So John Wakefield established Atari Japan in August 1973. Wakefield placed Kenichi Takumi... I never know where to put the uh, emphasis on the syllables in Japanese names, but Kenichi Takumi, or Takumi. Takumi sounds more correct from what little Japanese I hear. Yes, but they sometimes emphasize in different places. In charge of the company, a salesman who graduated from Japan's prestigious Waseda University and spent time at National Cash Register in the Ohio State University. From its inception, the company was beset with a host of problems stemming largely from both Atari's unfamiliarity with the Japanese market and Takumi's own lack of experience in coin-op, including an inability to pass product through customs or attract local operators to take the games. Takumi finally approached Masaya Nakamura in early 1974 to ask Nakamura Manufacturing to serve as a distributor. Nakamura was already thinking about global expansion now that his firm was one of the largest coin-op manufacturers in the country and readily agreed. 
Obviously, I've already covered the early history of Namco in a, or of Nakamura manufacturing in a previous chapter, which is why we hit them right in the middle here. Even with Nakamura's help, Atari Japan continued to fall apart, his employee theft ran rampant, and Takami simply stopped coming into work. Leadership of the company fell to its general manager, Hideyuki Nakajima, an ambitious executive who had left the employment of the Japan Art Paper Company because he knew he would never be more than a faceless cog in a machine at the large and venerable papercraft firm. Nakajima possessed an unusual entrepreneurial spirit for a Japanese salaryman, so when his brother, a lawyer helping to set up Atari Japan, told him about the new coin-op subsidiary, he leapt at the chance to be involved. Now its de facto leader with Takumi's departure, Takumi, whatever, he began putting some of his own money into the company to keep it afloat, and asked Nolan Bushnell to give him time to right the ship. Unfortunately, Atari was in the midst of the financial woes that almost destroyed the company, and could not afford to wait for a turnaround. Selling Atari Japan would be crucial to fixing Atari's cash flow problems, so the firm required a sizable return on the sale. Ron Gordon, still acting as a fixer for Bushnell at the time, approached both Sega and Taito about a deal, but neither was willing to offer much considering the poor showing made by Atari's games in the country. Next, Gordon approached Nakamura to see if he might take Atari Japan off his hands. At first, Nakamura refused. While a major player in the Japanese market, Nakamura Manufacturing was still a relatively small company, with a market capitalization of just 80 million yen, far less than Gordon's asking price. But Nakamura understood that even though electromechanical games still ruled Japan at the time, video was the future of the industry. Gordon convinced Nakamura that he may never have another chance this good to break into the new medium, and Nakamura agreed in July 1974 to meet Atari's 296 million yen, $1.18 million, asking price for Atari Japan. The Atari deal called for Nakamura to pay the full amount by October 1974, but he quickly realized he would be unable to meet that obligation. A two-day negotiation followed in August, after which Bushnell and Gordon relented since they had no other good options for selling the business, and allowed Nakamura to pay 550000 immediately and 250000 a year for three years. Nakamura managed to acquire loans from several banks, despite the general unwillingness of the financial sector in Japan to deal with coin-operated amusement companies, and completed the purchase by assuming a debt that would take two years to pay off. Atari Japan remained a separate subsidiary of Nakamura Manufacturing under Nakajima, who ultimately stayed on despite a reluctance to work for another established firm after Nakamura elevated him to a vice presidency in Nakamura Manufacturing and charged him with boosting international sales. Over the next two years, Nakamura released several Atari games in Japan and experienced some success with products like Tank, but this was the height of the Metal Game fad. We've talked about Metal Game sometimes in the past. Multiple times. Those slot machine-like things, exactly. And of course, I talk about them earlier in this book as well. And video games failed to have a large impact in the coin-op marketplace. By 1976, the Japanese government was beginning to crack down on metal games, and the coin-op industry was on the lookout for something to replace them. Breakout did not appear to be the answer at first, as distributors at the annual Japanese amusement show were far more interested in Taito's import of Midway's Tornado Baseball. But its simple, yet addictive gameplay and requirement for only one player helped it slowly gain popularity, until Nakamura proved unable to keep up with demand. This led other companies to create their own versions of the game, including some that had never been involved in the industry before. The first Japanese company to release a breakout clone was a pachinko manufacturer, called the Universal Sales Company. Founder Kazuo Okada grew up poor and fatherless in the aftermath of World War II, but managed through hard work and perseverance to gain entry to a Japanese technical college and become an expert on vacuum tubes. 
In roughly 1963, Okada discovered an old jukebox in a trash pile and realized he could use his knowledge of vacuum tubes to repair it. He subsequently established a jukebox repair business and over the course of six years amassed savings of roughly 20 million yen, a significant sum for an entrepreneur in Japan at that time. In 1967, Okada began installing and operating jukeboxes, leading him to use his life savings to establish the Universal Lease Company in 1969. In July 1970, he started a manufacturing division in order to produce pachinko machines. He discovered the manufacturing required a different skill set than operating, however, and ran out of money within two years. With no banks willing to lend to a coin-op company, Okada convinced some of his fellow manufacturers to extend him credit to keep the company afloat until it reached profitability. That's something about Japanese business that's very different from American business is that there's, even amongst competitors, there's a certain amount of collaboration and a certain amount of cross-company investment as everyone kind of looks after the larger industry in addition to looking after their own interests. Yeah, we brought this up before in at least a few of our Japanese looks about how much they do interact and really prop each other up. I believe in relation exactly to, like we were saying here, with Space Invaders and... Mm-hmm. Galaxian. Galaxian and, and some of the other yep. ones where they just sort of like, they sort of copied each other, but they supported each other. It's almost like, yeah, we're in competition, but it's friendly competition where I'll help you out because I know you're going to help me out later. Right. I mean, it's it can still be cutthroat at times, but the idea is, you know, it's that Japan communal thing. The idea is even as we all strive to be number one, we need to make sure that the overall industry, the overall community doesn't fall apart which is why there's a little bit of that sharing. After Breakout became successful, a jukebox vendor named Takishi Miyajima asked Okada to manufacture a version for him. Released to Scratch in early 1977, Universal's game helped kick the Breakout fad into high gear by paving the way for other companies to release their own machines. As Breakout and its imitators found success in Japan, leading coin-op company Taito struggled with a new problem, the decline of its traditional jukebox business. The culprit was a new type of coin-operated music player called a karaoke machine, into which a patron could insert a 100-yen coin to sing along with the backing track of a popular song. That would totally not take off in Japan and was just a horrible waste <laughs> of time. Absolutely. Yes. I'm lying. <laughs> the inventor of karaoke, Daisuke Inoue, was working as a club musician in Kobe when a regular customer asked him to record piano accompaniment for several songs. The salaryman made the request because he would be meeting business clients out of town and would be expected to sing, but he felt only Inoue's arrangements made him sound any good. This worked out so well for the businessman that he asked Inoue for more recordings, leading Inoue to envision the karaoke machine. Released as the Juke 8 in 1971, Inoue's machine achieved sales of 25,000 units within a year. As Inoue never patented his system, he was soon joined by a host of imitators, as karaoke quickly became a national pastime. In this environment, the jukebox was quickly displaced. To regain a foothold in the bar market, Taito experimented with a new type of arcade cabinet called a tabletop, or TT model, a flat sit-down cabinet that would allow a player to eat or drink while playing the game housed within. This approach was similar to the cocktail table design several U.S. manufacturers had adopted to expand the Pong market into high-end establishments which had not infiltrated Japan in large numbers. Due to its popularity, Taito decided to make its breakout clone the first game it released in a TT cabinet. Deployed in 1977, TT Block took the industry by storm as some establishments rushed to replace all their tables with TT games due to the incredible revenue they generated. 
TT Cabinets extended video games into Japanese clubs, snack bars, and coffee and tea houses for the first time, thus greatly expanding the reach of arcade video games and helping them become a significant force in the Japanese coin-op industry for the first time. For the Nakamura Manufacturing Company, which changed its name to Namco in early 1977, the entry of Universal, Taito, and other firms into the market was problematic. Atari continually proved unable to ship enough units for Namco to meet demand, thus providing an opportunity for these other companies to establish a foothold in the marketplace. The success of Borokuzushi, or blockbusting games, also attracted the attention of several Yakuza clans, organized crime syndicates that ran many of the less savory business enterprises in the country. Indeed, Nakamura himself was approached by a Yakuza representative who promised to make his competition problems go away if he would only cut the clan in on his business. Wanting nothing to do with organized crime, Nakamura traveled to Europe to make a personal appeal to Nolan Bushnell at a trade show for more supply, but he found the Atari boss hungover and in no state to make a deal. Feeling out of options, Nakamura decided to break his contract with Atari and begin making his own PCBs of the game, fully bringing Namco into the video game manufacturing business. This decision left Namco poised to become one of the most important coin-op manufacturers in Japan as the video game industry matured. By 1978, government crackdowns on metal games, long tarnished by gray market operators who would allow players to exchange tokens for prizes, because gambling's illegal in Japan, had brought Japan's biggest coin-operated amusement fad to a halt. Japan's four largest coin-op manufacturers, Sega, Taito, Namco, and Costco, responded to these new market conditions in different ways. Taito focused on importing the latest video games from American companies like Midway, Exidy, and Meadows, supplemented by a small amount of internal video game development by its original video game engineer, Tomohiro Nishikado. Namco remained focused on its Atari video game business and domestic electromechanical output, but began researching the possibility of developing its own video games as well. In contrast, Casco chose to focus exclusively on electromechanical games, a decision largely driven by the company's lack of expertise in solid-state design and inability to attract an outside partner for collaboration. Casco never would fully commit to the video game industry, and the firm slowly faded in importance. Japan's top coin-op manufacturer, Sega, followed a slightly different path from its competitors. After Gulf and Western purchased the company from David Rosen, Marty Bromley, and partners in 1969, Rosen made a point of becoming close with both G&W CEO Charles Bloodhorn and G&W President Jim Judelson. Impressed by Rosen's ambition and drive, they offered him an opportunity to form a new Far Eastern conglomerate that could rival G&W's holdings in the West. Gulf and Western Far East Pacific was created in Hong Kong in 1970, with Rosen as president and Sega Enterprises as a subsidiary. But the era of conglomerating was rapidly ending, and the market conditions in Asia at the time did not lend themselves to this scheme. In 1974, G&W wound up the company so that Bloodhorn and Rosen could take Sega public in the United States instead. Rather than take Sega public directly, G&W employed an elaborate scheme centered on its many subsidiary companies. One such firm, Consolidated Brands, owned just over 53% of a publicly traded cosmetics firm called the Polly Bergen Company that had been transformed into a shell corporation when its cosmetics business was sold off to a rival firm in 1973. In March 1974, G&W carried out a reverse stock split to increase its holdings in Polybergen to 95%, shifted ownership of Sega Enterprises Limited to the former cosmetics firm as a subsidiary company, and renamed Polybergen to Sega Enterprises, Inc. Rosen became chairman, CEO, and president of the new parent company. A G&W executive with extensive experience in the consumer electronics business named Harry Kane, 
who had joined Sega as executive vice president in 1972, took over the day-to-day operations of Sega Enterprises Limited in Japan. So we did an episode on this. Sega's history is confusing, and almost nobody ever gets it right. But this is the period of time when it reaches one of its most confusing junctures, because you have Sega Enterprises Incorporated, (laughs) which used to be a completely different company and just had its name changed, and that became the parent company of the business. And then Sega Enterprises Limited, the Japanese company, became a subsidiary of Sega Enterprises Incorporated, an American company, and... That situation continued until Gulf and Western got rid of stuff. But that's one of those areas where people don't understand sometimes the difference and who can blame them. Sega Enterprises Incorporated and Sega Enterprises Limited, two different companies. What now? What what now? There's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's time for a tangent. Yay. This is actually the story of Alex telling me the entire thing of Sega is the thing that put the idea in my head of doing this podcast. Because we were hiding in my basement after the power went out, because we're nerds who hide in the basement when the power goes out. And sometimes even when the power's on. That's true. (laughs) So since the power's out and our original plan of playing something or other completely fell through, he just started telling me about his research into Sega and the entire convoluted nightmarish history of it. And I'm just (laughs) laying there enthralled in the story, and I just go, in the back of my head, Someone other than me has got to hear this guy talk about stuff. <laughs> so that just that's an idea that just kept bouncing around in my head. And then as things developed more and more, I just thought one of these days when we were having dinner, I was like, you know, I want to record this stuff. I want to record it and put it out there and see on a mad whim how many people would actually listen to this. <laughs> Little did I right. know, four years later and episode 107 with this one, we're still doing it. Absolutely. <laughs> By 1974, Sega was bringing in revenues of just over $23 million, with a profit of $2.4 million. Most of this income came from the operations division which placed roughly 20,000 Sega arcade games in 7,000 locations throughout Japan. Sega also continued to import Rockola jukeboxes and Williams pinball machines for distribution, and to operate the Rosen Enterprises network of movie theater gun corners. To supplement these locations, Sega established a chain of game centers patterned on the Sigma Enterprises game Fantasia Milano that offered metal games and similar amusements. Sega remained a major manufacturer of coin-operated games as well, which were built at a 135,000-square-foot facility near the Haneda Airport in Tokyo. Sega expended most of its efforts on the metal game market and achieved notable successes with a console roulette wheel machine called Faro and an elaborate horse racing game called Harness Race. The company also began developing its own video games by adapting the light gun technology it had been using for the electromechanical games in its gun corners for years to create target shooting games incorporating light-sensitive gun-shaped controllers called Balloon Gun, 1974, and Bullet Mark, 1975. Its first video hit, however, was a baseball game called Last Inning, 1975. Finally, Sega was the only Japanese company to manufacture a complete range of coin-op amusements after introducing Japan's first domestically produced pinball machines in 1971. With business booming in Japan, David Rosen was eager to expand his operations into the United States. In May 1974, the company opened its first U.S. office under the auspices of Sega Finance VP Malcolm Kaufman. In early 1975, Rosen reached a preliminary agreement with the financially troubled Seabird Corporation 
to purchase its Williams Electronics subsidiary, but the deal fell through. That July, Rosen established a new subsidiary called Sega of America in Redondo Beach, California, centered around a 50,000-square-foot factory that could build Sega games for the American market. Bullet Mark was the first game built at the factory, but it proved a flop with North American operators due to the gigantic size of the cabinet. A scaled-down version called Tracer was therefore developed and released the next year. In 1976, Sega turned its attention to driving video games to capitalize on the massive success of Taito's Speed Race in Japan. In February, the company deployed a game called Road Race, designed by Hideki Sato, that featured the same basic gameplay as Speed Race, but used circuitry that directly manipulated the monitor to distort the picture and give the illusion of a winding road for additional challenge. They basically played with the magnetization of the coils in the CRT itself so that the top of the screen became distorted, just like back in the day, enterprising young people might have put a magnet up to the side of their old CRT television if they were the nerdy type and watched as the picture bent and changed color and whatnot because you were changing the magnetic field because you were using a magnetic field to dictate how the screen was being drawn by the CRT. And so they were basically doing the same thing that young kids used to do, except they were doing it deliberately inside the hardware itself so that it looked like you had a curvy, windy road. But in fact, it was just messing up the television to give that illusion, which is kind of interesting. It really is. And the old way that televisions work with being completely messed up by magnets and kids could actually ruin a television by leaving a magnet on it. Yeah. I may have done this to one television. (laughs) That's why a lot of uh, monitored, PC monitors that were CRTs actually have a degauss function on it because just Mm -hmm. the length of time that a lot of those monitors did and all the complicated things they did would just naturally introduce these kind of interferences and you would have to periodically run degauss which just sent a big emp pulse right at the screen in order to just reset everything yep absolutely and it was fun (laughs) the last time i had to do that was about three years ago wait jeff it's 2020 How the heck did you have to do that in 2017? (laughs) I work at a manufacturing plant doing IT for them, and some of the very old milling machines and the things that control them are cost-prohibitive to upgrade to something newer. I mean, like office stuff is all newer. But a lot of the older milling machines run Windows 95, 98, or even older systems, depending on the age of it. And there are systems that we have that are CRTs, and so... My ancient knowledge of how all this stuff works is actually beneficial because I had to make everything from DOS to Windows 2012 and Windows 10 all play nicely together, which is an entertaining challenge. (laughs) Indeed it is. And by entertaining, he means leaves him crying in a corner. Yes. (laughs) I think my favorite story of uh, making ancient technology work is remembering something that I did when I was about... 12 years old, and that was making a 286 computer work. (laughs) You say, Jeff, a 286 computer? That would just work. No. You see, back (laughs) in the day, kids, you had to actually tell your computer how big the hard drive was. The computer (laughs) wouldn't go and talk to the hard drive and go, oh, how big are you? And the hard drive would then say to the computer, I am 20 gigabytes. Well, this time it was like more like 20 megabytes, but case in point. <laughs> you had to actually tell the computer, I have this many cylinders, 
this many sectors, this many heads, this many whatever. You have to tell the geometry, have it right in the BIOS, and make it work. We have an old, old computer that I had a nice little box that said, pray you never have to open this box. Because it's the stuff that I had in order to fix the 286 computer. And we had to open this box once. We've since gotten rid of this thing, so I'm happy. (laughs) The thing that happened was there was a major power outage over the weekend, so the machine was off. As so happens is the BIOS battery in it had gone away and died. So it lost its hard drive parameters. Okay, well, why won't this thing work? Is this dead? No. Is this dead? No. Wait, why does the BIOS not have auto-detect? Oh, (laughs) it's one of those systems. So I had to go look at the hard drive, get its model. I had to go onto the internet, and thankfully to the glories of ancient archives on the internet, I was able to interpolate the geometry of the hard drive. And then the thing went up, and then it worked. And everyone was happy, and the day was saved. Yay! And Jeff died with more inside. Something like that. <laughs> no, but no, it's a great story. It seriously is, and some great ingenuity there getting that solved. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it, it, tying back, back to the CRTs, it's just like, if you ever get a plan, if you have like a junk CRT you can actually lay your hands on, ruin it by playing around with it with a magnet. It's fun. Absolutely. <laughs> In August, the company released a variant called MAN-TT that replaced the cars with motorcycles and the steering wheel control with handlebars that vibrate after a collision, the first instance of haptic feedback in a video game. In November, the game was rebranded for the North American market as The Fawns to capitalize on the popularity of the motorcycle-riding bad boy of the hit television sitcom Happy Days, produced by another Gulf and Western subsidiary, Paramount Television. A lot of these games are super rare, but there is, unless it's vanished since I last looked at it, there is one single video, a brief one, of gameplay of an actual Fawns game in a cabinet. Because since these were all TTL games, there's no code to dump, there's no ROMs to dump. So MAME, for instance, has very, very, very few TTL games. There are a couple in there, because a couple of really popular ones people went to the effort of recreating in software. But most of this early 70s output couldn't be dumped, can't be saved in that way, so you would have to go out and find an arcade cabinet. And since many of these games sold in very few numbers, low thousands, and games naturally wear out over time, and it's been 40 years plus, it's very hard to find some of these. But there is one gameplay video of the Fawns, and we will definitely put that in the show notes because it is the same game as this road race, just with different graphics. You can see in that even though there's no roadway videos online, at least that I've been able to find, you can see this exact curving effect of the top of the screen that we're talking about in that Fonz gameplay video. As the licensing agreement for the Fonz indicates, David Rosen was keen on turning the U.S. market into an important profit center for Sega. He was also convinced of the necessity of cultivating North American engineering talent for his company's arcade games. His Japanese staff was still primarily focused on electromechanical game design, so he sought to hire engineers with solid-state and computer engineering experience in the United States who could collaborate with his engineers back in Japan on new technology. In 1976, Rosen appointed Sega Enterprises Limited Executive Vice President Harry Kane as the new president of Sega of America and brought in Dane Blau from General Instrument to replace him as Executive VP and COO of Sega Enterprises. 
He also hired an RCA engineer named Richard Norwalt with an extensive background in solid-state circuits and advanced display design as vice president of R&D. One of the first fruits of this R&D effort was a microprocessor-driven quiz game called Tic-Tac Quiz, deployed in December 1976. Sega also looked for other ways to penetrate the North American market outside of coin-op game manufacturing and R&D. In July 1975, the company purchased a 50% stake in a company called Kingdom of Oz that operated four arcades in California shopping malls. That number rose to six by March 1976 when Sega made Kingdom of Oz a wholly-owned subsidiary and renamed the arcades Sega Centers. In June, Sega expanded into consumer electronics by purchasing the assets of Munts Manufacturing, a producer of projection television systems that the company marketed under the SegaVision brand name. That's another one of those old technologies that were really cool in their day and then were rendered completely obsolete. So most of us had those CRT televisions. I still have a CRT. Yes. But generally speaking, CRT televisions could only reach a, realistically reach a certain size. You wouldn't have anything like a 65-inch CRT television, like those 65-inch flat screens that people put in their homes these days. But I really want one of those, too. So the way they got around that back in the day is they actually created what they called projection televisions, which was basically, for all intents and purposes, a movie projector pointing at a screen, but they packaged it in such a way that it felt like a television product and not like you were showing a movie projector on your wall or something. So that was a kind of fancy way to get a bigger screen in your house in a time where the technology was limited to be able to do so with a CRT. And the problem with those is they usually looked pretty washed out. Unless they were calibrated well, they had issues. Also, I think as they aged, they even became more washed out. Yeah. I'm not sure if you saw it, but someone's house that I went to in the basement, they actually did have a Super Nintendo hooked up to one of these things. And seeing Zelda Link to the Past in giant glory was quite entertaining. (laughs) I bet. Yeah, it's one of those technologies. Very few people had them and it kind of faded away. But for a brief period of time, it was the 65-inch flat screen of its day. By the end of fiscal 1978, it was clear that Sega's expansion into North America was not working. The television manufacturing business proved a complete disaster and was suspended in early 1978. While a downturn in the U.S. market for coin-operated video games left the company with excess inventory and a sharply curtailed release schedule. Only the arcade operations, by now expanded to a dozen locations, turned a profit, but only after suffering through three years of losses. Therefore, while the Japanese arm of the company continued to perform well, and overall revenues increased from $23.9 million in 1975 to $37.2 million in 1978, profits steadily trended downward from $2.6 million in 1975 to just $347,000 in 1977, before stabilizing at $1.9 million in 1978. These difficulties did not just hit Sega, but the entire coin-op video game industry. As the solid-state revolution, begun by Spirit of 76 and Gunfight in 1975, contributed to a revitalization of the game of pinball. And scene. Scene? That's right. But I want more. I just played pinball last weekend. I need more pinball. (laughs) Well, in that case, you would have to get your hands on a copy of this book here. 
which uh, is admittedly an expensive product, I'm aware. Believe me, I wish that we could offer it for a cheaper price. A mainstream publisher was never going to publish this. You know, your Penguin, your Random House, whatever. They are such detailed, deep dives into this industry, and the general public is not quite there yet to the point where they really want this deep a dive into this subject. So it would never have gotten the volume sales. I could have self-published, but as somebody who had never been published before, self-publishing is is a great way for somebody to get something out there if they've already built up some credibility and are already well-known and already respected, but have an idea for something that nobody will release. If somebody like me self-publishes, I just get lost in a sea of self-publishers because anybody can self-publish. Amazon's self-publishing services and all of this. I mean, anyone can self-publish today. I want my work to be credible. Even if that means fewer people read it, I want to be recognized. It's like, okay, this guy didn't just do this on his own. A publisher looked at his work and decided this guy has got something that is worth backing. So that meant that I had to go the academic press route. Academic presses, just because of the way they operate, they sell fewer copies of books, generally speaking, which means that they have to increase the price to compensate because they have all of the same production expenses as anyone else does, and then they make fewer sales on the back end. So it's tough that it has to be this expensive, but it it was the only way to do it. But as I hope that sample chapter showed, if you do decide to make that investment, I believe you will own something that tells the story in a way it's never been told before, that tells the story with detail that has never been done before, and unearths a lot of information and reconfigures a lot of existing information to tell the story in a new way and provide a deeper understanding of what actually happened in the history of this industry. And it certainly feels to me like it's very much follows a narrative sort of like what we do in the podcast, except almost at a higher level of that, where right. it's just more summarizes there. Because what we talked about or what you just read, I was thinking like, okay, we had this episode where we, co- we covered that in detail. <laughs> we covered the Atari thing here in that detail. We covered Breakout in this one, Nakamura Manufacturing, Sega. Yep, yep. In that chapter alone, we probably hit a good five to ten episodes of this podcast. No, I think that's absolutely true. And then there are a few little things like fun games, which, you know... We didn't talk about. Which don't really fit into a podcast theme, but, you know, fit into the context of of the book. So it is all very complimentary. It's all coming from the same place. If you like the kind of in-depth, fact-based, research-based examinations we do in this podcast month in and month out. And if you don't, why are you still here after 107 episodes? Stop torturing yourself. Then I think that there is also something in this book that you will enjoy. I mean, some people prefer audio to actually having to sit down and read something, and that's totally cool. I get that. But if you're someone that likes the work that we're doing on the podcast, and you're also someone who likes to read, I think that there is something here that is very good, and I think there is something here that will prove its value. And believe me, I'm not getting rich off of this. The fact that it's this expensive, I don't get a huge cut of every book, so it's not like I went out there and was like, I'm going to make money, I'm going to make this super expensive. 
it's really about getting the book out there in a credible way and making this whole thing work and, and getting this out for people. Again, the, that book that we just read an excerpt from is They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, 1971 to 1982, those we've said before. It does cover stuff from earlier time periods as well. Covers a lot of stuff going on in the 50s and 60s. And that book is available from the publisher itself's website, CRC Press. It's available from Amazon.com. It's available from other online retailers. You won't find it in your local bookstore, but you'll definitely find it online in plenty of places. There's ebook versions. Uh, there's a Kindle version. That's basically what we've got here. I, I hope you enjoyed us uh, taking a look at, at some of the book and doing some of our normal uh, podcast banter on top of that. Certainly, 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 certainly. Congratulations to whoever gets to win at the end of this thing. We'll hopefully get to announce those people on the 15th with the LucasArts episode. If not, we'll do it with the March 1st episode. I don't even have to ask you this time, what are we doing next time? I know, we're doing LucasArts and Adventure Games. Yes, and unless I'm full of lies again, which is always possible. I mean, he lied to us before about having a single part <laughs> episode dealing with Magnavox. Why not? And maybe we'll even have some nice, delicious cake with those episodes. Do I have to go make cake now? No, I'm making a reference to the cake being a lie and all of this being a lie. But that's the wrong franchise. <laughs> if you're going to do that, you have to talk about taking over the world! <laughs> well, I think we'll just start with LucasArts Adventure Games. They took over the world? Eh, took over Germany at least. I like Germany. That's some of the best stall food ever. Absolutely. So anyway, we will see you with LucasArts Adventure Games next time on They Create Worlds. But that's my line. Yes, but not this time. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollo Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 